Hello, everyone. My name is John Fall. I'm a DevOps consultant, and my business is called Dark Writer LLC. And I help customers either write infrastructure as code or perform security audits and all sorts of things. Today, we'll be talking about utilizing MongoDB Atlas with Terraform and helping automate all the setup and configuration to make your Mongo journey much easier with your platform. Welcome back to the MongoDB podcast. My name is Michael Lynn, your host. Since the advent of computers, there's been a tug of war between those responsible for building things and those responsible for making those things available to others. Developers build things, operators run those things in production. It's just the way that things have always worked. The thinking behind this separation of duties was logical and it was about maintaining order. You see, developers live in the world of creation, focused on solving problems, typically associated with users, user stories and requirements. And with the massively growing set of infrastructure requirements that often have little to do with code and user interaction, the effort required to ensure availability began to grow to the point where a division of responsibilities seemed logical. So the concept of an SDLC, Software Development Lifecycle, was created. And for me, as a developer, I was free to use my own environment to develop. I would write code and test that against the set of requirements that I received. And when it was ready, I would ship it off to someone who would test it. Once it cleared the testing, met all of the requirements, it was shipped off to yet another environment for user acceptance testing then sometimes even to another environment for pre-production testing. Only then was it shipped to yet another team for deployment in the production environment. All along the way, the code encountered silo after silo of individuals with very specific roles, finely tuned to their specific silo. And the result of this siloed approach was often a slow, disjointed production cycle that often created unintended consequences and massive delays. But somewhere around the mid-2000s, a revolution began to occur. A portmanteau of development and operations began to appear in tech journals, and DevOps became a thing. This was much to the chagrin of those steeped and mired in the old world of rigid sets of responsibilities and highly refined sets of job skills. DevOps became all the rage. DevOps as a paradigm involves a collaborative approach between developers and operators to create a better, more cohesive software development lifecycle. Most of the time, this involved developers creating automation, using tools to automate the process of deploying their code through these various environments. However, DevOps is far from magic, and these types of wholesale transformations don't happen overnight. DevOps is a mindset shift. And as I learned from my guest today, it's about small incremental changes and adopting a mindset that no job is a silo. John Fall is a self-proclaimed DevOps mercenary with many years of experience and many successful transformations under his belt. John talks about the tools that he relies on in the process of transforming companies to leverage DevOps as a part of their release lifecycle. Today, we're going to talk about the tools, the benefits, will help you understand what you need to consider when thinking about implementing infrastructure as code, continuous integration and deployment, and adopting DevOps as a mindset. Stay tuned.
John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you? I'm fantastic. So it's great to, to get you on the show. I've been meaning to, to have uh, an extended chat with you about some of the things that we've talked about in the past. And um, before we begin, John, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience, let folks know who you are and what you do. My name is John Fall, and I, I, I work independently as a consultant. And a lot of what I do for customers is I analyze their environments and provide feedback on infrastructure as code improvements, possibly um, observability improvements, security improvements. Um, and after I analyze and give them feedback, uh, I will go in and also remediate all those things for them. So part of what I do uh, for different clients, generally smaller startups, is I evaluate kind of their automation and modernization model and then help them remediate it if they want that help. So that's that's a lot of what I do. And I I work generally exclusively with one client at a time, but I've had about seven clients over the past two years. There are so many products and services in the DevOps space. And John's resume reads like a veritable who's who of all of these vendors and products. I asked John to take a step back and for the benefit of the listeners that may not be familiar with DevOps, let's get a really good refined definition of DevOps itself. What exactly is DevOps? De DevOps is really a, a cultural shift, more than like a, a specific technology platform or um, a way of, of doing using cloud or using infrastructure as code. But uh, DevOps it in its basic form is really where a lot of the operations processes of the past become more streamlined through development practices and and also the development practices become more efficient through automated infrastructure and security monitoring and all all that sort of stuff so it's kind of an, a culmination of of multiple skills and and uh, it's a blend of different cultures coming together to work as one cohesive unit for the business and as, as businesses are becoming more and more modernized, the buzzwordy DevOps is, is thrown around quite a bit. And sometimes it's referred to as a job title. Sometimes it's referred to as a department, but really it is the culture shift. And that, that's what it is to me. That's what I always try to leave with my clients is, is thinking in that, in that DevOps mindset uh, versus it being just very specific skills. A lot of times the DevOps skill sets that people you know, associate with is doing things like writing infrastructure as code through Terraform or setting up container scheduling services through Kubernetes or building all their platforms on AWS or DigitalOcean and that sort of stuff. So generally it's the person handling all the op operation of the infrastructure side through code management. When I think about adopting a cultural shift, adopting DevOps as a mindset, what are the things that someone coming from a more traditional background needs to think about? So if if you think of it about the way it used to be 10 years ago or even further, most organizations, especially large ones, lived in silos. So you had a database team, you had a security team, you had an administrative team for Windows, administrative team for Linux, you had .NET developers, C++ developers, what, whatever it was, and everybody kind of lived in their own silo. And threw it over the wall whenever they were trying to get things to production or get things through a project. And what DevOps culture represents in, in this way is 
is kind of blurring all those lines. So the the administrative folks need to uh, configure things through through code so that uh, you know processes are not only repeatable and you know scalable and extend extensible, but um, they can be revision controlled as well. Whereas developers need to care about making sure they're using security best practices and and also how their uh, application is going to work in an auto scaling environment or in a cloud environment, if it, whether it be microservices or serverless or, or whatever else, they need to have more skin in the game for how the operation side is going to work for the, for it to work in a modern architecture. And you see a lot of startups already kind of playing this culture shift by necessity. I mean, most startups, if they're small, only have a few engineers and those engineers need to do everything. They don't have the benefit of having silos of huge teams that that take care of one thing. So you see a lot of DevOps culture more prevalent in startups than you do big enterprises, but most big enterprises are either quite a bit down the road through their transition, or they're at least starting to do things the new ways. Now, I come from a, a more traditional background when I was a developer full-time. The separation of responsibilities was really rewarded in many ways. Developers were not to mess about with anything that had anything to do with production. And you're describing DevOps as a blending of responsibilities. And one person can do development engineering tasks, as well as those tasks associated with getting that the product of that development into production. What are some of the concerns around blending those responsibilities? And are there tools that are necessary in order to implement this type of uh, mindset and culture? I, I, I don't know if there's any really specific tools. I mean, the, the tool sets out there are are so vast and ever-growing. Uh, but as far as ensuring that separation of, of responsibilities and duties is maintained, this is a really standard security practice. As, as someone who's done a lot of security audits, one thing that security auditors always are looking for is that division of responsibility and separation of duties and all that sort of stuff. That, that is important, especially in very highly regulated environments. But in, in most cases, I, I wanna make the distinction that it's not necessarily that developers are doing all the administrative stuff or, or vice versa, but they have skin in the game in that the end-to-end -end process they have a lot of involvement with and understanding of, and it isn't so much of, here's my code, please deploy it for the development side of the house. And it's not so much that on the administrative or the, we'll call it the DevOps side, that um, if the code doesn't work, they just stop and say, hey, your code's not working. So you have to go back and, and fix it. It's more collaborative. So let me give you uh, an example. I try to think of it as whenever people are shipping code or working through improving their pipeline process, is you should shift the power as much as possible to the developers through these DevOps tooling processes. With one client, uh, and I'll go through this briefly, one client started where every day they released uh, to a QA branch and then validated it by hand. And then every morning they manually deployed their application. And this was in Google Cloud. And what I helped get them to transition to by the time I left was all the deployments initially were automated. I had automated them every day and it would, it would wrap everything together. It would, it would notify through Datadog. If it failed, it would alert on pager duty, all that sort of stuff. And then 
from there, we moved into a self-service model where, where developers could deploy on demand. So they controlled when the deployment happened. The deployment was fully automated and it, it would auto-promote through environments because the sophistication had been reached as a full team. They, they hired uh, QA engineers to, to uh, write several Selenium tests. They really invested in better unit testing and, and so on and so forth. So with a whole team working together and, and using not only cloud services, but automation and CICD to deliver software made it to where the process could be fully controlled by the developers on demand. And that's, that's powerful. Powerful indeed. Anytime you give developers the freedom, flexibility, and control to deploy in an automated fashion, that's power. I wanted to find out John's experience with MongoDB. MongoDB is at the heart of many DevOps deployments. Countless startups, midsize, and even large-scale enterprises are placing MongoDB at the center of their DevOps infrastructure. I mean, the thing that I love about uh, MongoDB is that we really put our money where where our mouth is uh, in terms of living uh, all of this. It's not just paying lip service to DevOps. That's Dominic Wellington, director of our market intelligence team here at MongoDB. I chatted with Dominic on the heels of AWS reInvent. We talked about some of the new features of MongoDB and how they're relevant, especially in the DevOps context. Uh, so, for instance, in 5.0, there was this feature, which was the versioned API. And I think a few people missed the significance of it. I was uh, oh, big whoop, the, the API has a version to it. It's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Uh, there's, there's this massive dilemma that people have to deal with. Do I upgrade my environment to take advantage of the latest features, the latest security fixes, the this, that, and the other? Or do I stick with the the old environment, but that way my programs, my apps, my interface won't break. And that's a terrible, terrible decision to force people to, to make. But instead, uh, the version of the API lets you break that dependency. You can upgrade the backend environment, take advantage of the latest and greatest, and the latest security fixes, be up to date with all of that, but present uh, a predictable interface to the apps uh, that's going to remain stable across all of these upgrades. So that was only introduced in 5.0, but now with 5.1, which is the first rapid release, we saw the first iteration of that. Uh, so someone who coded something against against 5.0, they want to try 5.1, that's fine. That will, is guaranteed to be stable, and that will remain through 6.0, the next major release, which will be next summer, uh, and throughout into the future. I don't think we've yet figured out exactly how long, but you know, we're guaranteeing this will be over a number of years. There'll be a versioned API that will be stable. And you know, at some point in the future, there will be a moment that we'll have to, to move forward. And then there will be one big step, and then it'll be version API 2.0, which will be for the next several years. But throughout that time, the backend will be moving forward potentially every three months if you keep up with these rapid releases, giving you new features every time available if you want them, keeping you up to date with every security fix, every compliance policy, uh, all of the improvements that our own ops engineers are making constantly to the Atlas backend, or if you're running self-managed uh, with the latest features that you have in that. And uh, meanwhile, all of the apps are just running seamlessly, not even aware that uh, uh, the whole tablecloth has been pulled out under them. The flowers are still standing to quote one of my very favorite films. 
I, I think, you know, people who are in the DevOps world probably have at least an inkling of what that represents. Uh, but some of the reactions I saw kind of skimmed over that. Oh, yeah, and there was also the version API. No, 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 hang on. That's a big deal, that. It's going to change people's lives. It's a dream of component isolation, right? That's what it's supposed to be like, but it's, it's hard to achieve that goal uh, in the absence of a feature like this. With a better understanding of the new features in MongoDB that are relevant in a DevOps play, I asked John to explain a bit about his experience with MongoDB and how it fits into DevOps and infrastructure as code. I've been supporting MongoDB environments for a few years now, and I used to manage my own clusters at a mobile backend as a service startup. And I started to learn about MongoDB Atlas recently, and my current client, Magic Bus, which is a Vampool platform in the cloud that they were wanting to use MongoDB. And I recommended we, we go with Atlas because MongoDB Atlas removes a lot of the micromanagement of the cluster, and it, get, it has so many good tools to really be able to not only get visibility into the health of your MongoDB clusters, but also it has a lot of natural uh, tie-ins with Terraform. There's a, a Terraform provider to manage MongoDB Atlas, which is awesome. And um, where it fit into my current client's portfolio is we set up their front-end and back-end services in AWS, and MongoDB Atlas can run on multiple clouds, right? So what I wanted to do, if at all possible, is to have as much of the uh, database access be controlled and encrypted and internal as possible. So through Terraform and MongoDB Atlas and AWS, I was able to set up VPC peering with our VPCs to MongoDB Atlas and set up all of our uh, API connections to the databases, basically internally. So it, it removed any sort of public footprint that I would have to fully lock down and really watch because it's not a good idea to have public access to database endpoints, right? So I was able to, to put all this together through Terraform and set up the MongoDB clusters per environment very, very quick and easily. I mean, I set up all three environments in you know, just a, a day or two of writing all the code out, having a, a POC built and then running it through all three three environments for, for my client. Not to say you couldn't do that with writing, say, puppet modules to manage MongoDB clusters or anything like that, but it was really quick and easy to use Terraform and MongoDB Atlas to just set up the entire data backplane. John continued to refer to Terraform from a company called HashiCorp. I asked John if he could provide a better explanation, if he could explain what Terraform is and why it's important in a DevOps context, knowing that we need to begin to treat the components in our infrastructure as though they were code, to version them and promote them through the various environments that we have in our infrastructure. Here's what John had to say. So Terraform is HashiCorp's, probably one of their biggest products. They, they have, HashiCorp is an entire ecosystem of DevOps tools. Uh, two of their most popular are Te Terraform and Vault, which is a security management platform. But Terraform is a kind of all 
reaching infrastructure as code orchestrator and configuration management tool, but it's much more of an orchestrator. So you can write Terraform code to say, create a VPC, a couple subnets, some security groups and some EC2 instances in AWS, or it could set up a Google app engine set up in uh, Google with the GKE Kubernetes cluster and some you know, Google front end and back end load balancer tools or anything else. So it's, it's not at a layer of abstraction where you could say, I want a server and give it to me in say DigitalOcean or Linode. It, it doesn't work like that but they have these individual providers per per service, whether it be AWS or Google or Azure or Cloudflare or Datadog or MongoDB Atlas, which gives you, it gives you the tools to write resources to be able to manage all the different infrastructure objects uh, as code. So it, it's an extremely powerful tool and it's very popular in the community, very, very popular. And one of the biggest uh, popularity pieces, apart from it being, in my opinion, really good and easy to use and, and very well documented and very, very well established in the community, is that it isn't agnostic to a specific platform. So if, if you get really good at writing CloudFormation, for instance, that's that's only in AWS. So if you went to, to Google or Azure, you have to use a completely different tool set. Whereas Terraform, it's it's familiar and you're just using that new provider and building those resources. So that's really HashiCorp Terraform in a nutshell. And I like that it's cloud agnostic. Infrastructure as code, obviously valuable in a DevOps setting. How difficult is it to learn the the syntax of crafting resources in Terraform? Is it difficult to learn the syntax? Uh, is there a reverse engineering capability where I can look at what has been created outside of Terraform or can, can Terraform map something that has been created previously? So let me answer in, in the order you asked them. So it it is easy to learn, difficult to master, in my opinion. So some people may uh, disagree with me, but I think that you can pick up and create resources pretty quick with Terraform. Their documentation is very good about giving you example resource layouts so that you can move pretty fast. Where Terraform's or HashiCorp language starts to get more difficult is as you start wanting to manage things at scale and use more programmatic language to create resources, like for instance, like for loops or modules and submodules, that sort of thing, it can get more complex. But just to get up and running, it's very easy. There's a couple things you can do. So one is you can import resources into your Terraform configuration. So let's say you built something by hand and you want to manage it by Terraform, you can totally do that. You would write the resource as you would normally, and then you could run a Terraform import command and it'll actually inject that resource into your configuration state. So you can totally do that. I also find there's so much Terraform or HashiCorp Terraform examples in the community that it's very easy to sort of copy pasta or reverse engineer how other people have written Terraform code to, to customize how you want to do things. So there's a lot of examples out there, which is good. A big concern is getting something launched. I'm sure a lot of people are listening and they've got a project that they're going to work on and maybe they want to consider Terraform. Getting something launched is just a small piece of the puzzle. Once it's up and running, you've got concerns around making sure that it stays running efficiently. What kind of tools uh, are available for, for monitoring and continued maintenance? 
So with MongoDB Atlas, one of the strengths I, I really liked as I was further researching the platform is how much is already built into the platform itself to allow for monitoring and alerting and health checks that you normally would have to kind of write your own solution or or write your own queries or build alerts on your own. The thing I like so much about MongoDB Atlas is I was able to uh, use Terraform uh, to create MongoDB Atlas cluster alerts and alarms. And since MongoDB Atlas already has integrations to things like Datadog, I was able to, to not only create alerts and alarms through Terraform, but then have them go to my observability platform of Datadog so that if there was a cluster election or let's say a, a, cl a cluster node were to fail, that chain of alerts would come to me nicely. I also like the fact that you have a, a good heads up display of what is going on with each cluster as you drill into your individual projects and clusters. And you have a lot of tools to quickly diagnose what's going on without having to actually remote into your MongoDB nodes themselves. For quick maintenance and quick observability, the, the MongoDB Atlas platform, it provides a, a lot just out of the box and it's quick. And it, it even sets up some alerts for you automatically. So like just basic CPUs on fire or anything else like that, it, it sets a lot of alerts up for you, but it also has the ability, uh, and I should mention this now, it has a, a nice rich API to it as well. And obviously Terraform is hitting a lot of that API, but if you had to write your own scripts to query MongoDB Atlas, let's say you wanted to kick off a backup job really quick, it has that capability and it's very easy to get up and running with MongoDB Atlas's uh, docs on using their API, which I think is really cool because having a good API makes it much easier to, to use and uh, write observability against. One other thing that I'll mention is I really like how clean the backup, restore, and schedule utilities are for the clusters. I mean, nobody wants to have to restore uh, a, a cluster from a failure, but it, it has a nice, easy, not only GUI, but you know through the Terraform resources to set up those lifecycle policies. And uh, re recovering uh, a cluster is also very simple to do. So with all, with all that kind of wrapped together, it provides, it, it, it Atlas just builds a, a much greater shell around MongoDB itself for the usability and the operation and the maintenance and the monitoring of MongoDB. DevOps as a mindset and infrastructure as code as a deployment methodology does require some preparation. And as a result of that, there's some overhead associated with that. DevOps is not a panacea. It's not going to work in every case. I asked John to talk about the sweet spot. What are some of the use cases and deployment models where DevOps does make sense and perhaps where it doesn't? The, the value of, of adopting the mindset is having the ability to recreate easily and duplicate and revision changes through the entire platform. So for instance, if I was a, a one person shop and I had to create only my user account and I had only one environment called dev and I created one cluster there and I set up five alerts, 
And I set up a VPC peering to it because I didn't want it to go over the internet. But I also had a few different internet spots that I wanted to poke into. So I opened the network security group uh, there in MongoDB Atlas for that cluster. And then I um, set up a couple test users. And then I set up, I think they're called um, roles or teams for some mock users. And I am doing all this work, right, to set up my environment. So let's say a few months pass and I need to set up another cluster just like this one. Well, if I didn't document it well, it might take me a while to, or maybe not too long to reverse engineer it and redo it again in another project in MongoDB Atlas. But if I had all of that in code, I could just add an environment in with, with the variables in HashiCorp Terraform and just deploy the next environment and it would be consistent. And then I could also hand that code off to somebody else and say, I need you to, to create three more clusters and they could do it. And then anytime I, let's say somebody goes in and modifies an alarm or turns it off because it's too noisy. You know how that goes where you have an alert that's noisy, but it's not critical. So somebody mutes it and then forgets to unmute it and then it becomes a problem. So when I run uh, my Terraform code again, it would check if I'm managing those resources, like the alarm and everything, it would check that it's disabled or muted or off and set it back. So it's providing me a, a predictable state that I want my environment to be in. Anybody that's managed uh, manually configured environments, I know I've done it. I, I was a manual configurer for many, many years. When you go back to look at things, it's sometimes hard to remember why something was set up or if somebody changed something, it, it throws you off because... You don't know if it's critical or important or if it was an accident. And making those changes through code means that it was mindfully or at least semi-mindfully revisioned and changed with hopefully somebody reviewing the code changes and, and everything else. And, and then it can be revisioned back if it needs if it needs to be. So it's just much more intentional and it's much more of a like a developer's process to uh, infrastructure changes. With MongoDB and MongoDB Atlas, since this is most likely the, the data layer to the platform, those can be some of the most sensitive changes that, that people make. I mean, we, you've seen the memes, of course, where somebody says, you know, uh, launched a database call and 8 million rows affected and like, you know, oops, that was huge mistake. You know, making database changes or database infrastructure changes are really risky. I would want those changes to be code revisioned and, and checked and, and make sure they're consistent across environments. So having, for instance, uh, with, with my client Magic Bus, we have uh, a MongoDB cluster that's identical per environment. It's just the um, actual either sizing or scaling parameters vary. So like in development, they might be an in, in M20 or an M10, but in production, it's an M40, for, for, for example. But the other configurations are identical so that whenever we're doing testing, I, I'm, I'm not going to get unpredictable results with configurations. The other thing is whenever we do database migrations, we do them through our CICD pipeline. So it applies in each environment as it gets promoted through the different environments in, in GitLab. All the changes to the database are code revision, whether it's infrastructure wise or whether it's like schema or collection wise, it's always code revisioned and, and controlled. That way it's got a history, it's it's tracked, it's verified versus just willy nilly changed. Anything that's gonna be very temporary or like a proof of concept 
I don't think it's nearly as important for infrastructure as code. You know, there is a time investment to writing the code to manage the infrastructure. And if it's going to change constantly or if it's going to be built and thrown away, then I would say just build it and throw it away when you when you don't need it anymore. Sometimes, though, depending on your circumstance, it still makes sense to use infrastructure as code. Uh, we have temporary like QA and demo environments we build that use MongoDB Atlas, and it might completely drop the database each time, but the infrastructure that, that has the cluster there or sets it up, that's all automated. So it we decided, let, let's put it this way, like in most cases, I will always go to infrastructure as code, but I could see for fast proof of concept or temporary environments not having to, to go with it because because maybe it's just not worth the time. The other thing is if, uh, let's say it's a big enterprise that isn't heavily invested in infrastructure as code and they still have teams that manage things, you're gonna want your tool set to be as strong as possible then because for instance, if, the, if they're using MongoDB Atlas, they're gonna rely heavier on that API being strong so at least they can manage things through scripts or they're gonna rely on the, the UI being strong if they're kind of a point and click sort of group. Uh, then they, they have to rely on the tools being powerful so that it can help supplement the fact that they're not managing it through code. So I, I feel like it, there, there's a balance if they aren't gonna do infrastructure as code that the tools have to be really strong or the team's procedures have to be well-documented, something like that. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're overwhelmed by the sheer volume of knowledge that John has, you're not alone. I'm quite impressed with John's experience and his depth of knowledge in this space. I asked John to focus on the listeners that may not be as far along in their journey into DevOps. What advice might someone like John have for someone just beginning their journey into adopting a DevOps mindset or even just interested in adopting some of the tools to implement DevOps? I would say the biggest piece of advice is to never look at any task as not your job. So when I was a traditional Windows administrator, I worked on VMware farms and um, you know I worked on Cisco switches and all that sort of stuff. I had a very clear uh, boundary or barrier in my head of what I would and would, would and wouldn't touch. And anytime something got into code at all, I would stop. And when I started to get into the into this DevOps world and started working with developers closely and started to learn cloud services and all that sort of stuff, my mindset changed heavily that the, that there are no silos and there are no walls. So you're, you're as part of a, a team to support a startup or an enterprise or, or whatever it is to get the job done efficiently, leaving a trail for the next person to pick up uh, where it's, it's repeatable, it's extensible, it, it's documented, all that sort of stuff. So the DevOps culture shift is, is about really making it all part of your sphere of influence and understanding each step of the way from coming up with the concept of a, of a, a product or, or a feature to, to its release, you're, you're involved so that you can properly not only support that life cycle, but be part of the troubleshooting team and be part of the entire solution. It's, it's going from saying you have a very specific job with 
very specific boundaries to you have a very in-specific job that is involved with all steps of the life cycle. Okay. So someone just starting out, that's good advice. What other resources are available that somebody should invest time in learning? You mentioned GitLab. That's part of your CICD. Um, what other elements are, are there in the stack and, and what should people start looking into in terms of tools and, and resources? That's a really good question. And it's a tough one to answer because the landscape constantly changes. With, with all technology, it, it moves fast and the way of doing things, it just seems to move faster nowadays. But to answer your question, if someone was getting into this DevOps realm from, from nothing, I would say that I, I generally recommend that people learn one operating system at a minimum to decently, but preferably both Windows and Linux, that they learn containers, that they learn at least one automation to, tool, whether it be Puppet or Ansible or uh, Terraform. Most of the time I recommend to people Ansible and Terraform because Ansible is really easy to use and it's easy to pick up on and it's it's used quite a bit in the industry. Also, I recommend to learn OneCloud and I generally point people to AWS because it's it's the most common, even though you know Azure and Google, uh, tons of companies use them. AWS just tends to get a little bit more ask in the market. Most, most job recs I see want AWS experience. So generally, uh, I always will go to recommending AWS, but it's also about learning uh, Git and probably w at least one platform like GitHub or, or GitLab and learning CICD tools. You know, you could say Jenkins is more of the older school tool, but Jenkins is the Swiss army knife of platforms, but you could also learn tools like Circle CI or, or GitLab CI or Travis CI. Uh, so it's it's kind of a, a smattering of tools to learn, you know, something around CI/CD, something around observability like Datadog or Splunk or Sumo Logic, something around you know cloud services like AWS. It's a lot, and it's it's a lot for people to learn. Uh, for resources, the good thing is is there's a tremendous amount of resources out there. There's free resources on YouTube that teach people how to set up an EC2 WordPress server or something like that. Then there's um, really cheap courses on Udemy that will teach you things like Python programming or setting up a CI/CD pipeline between Jenkins and something in in Google uh, Cloud. Or you know, there's also formalized education. But I feel like that should be the last resort. I think there's so much uh, that's available to people inexpensively or free to pick skills up that that's where they should start. You've got so much knowledge in this space, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. I'm curious about your journey. How did you learn all of these technologies? That's a great question, Michael. I would say that I'm definitely not an expert at anything. I've worked at so many places and I've worked in so many different types of teams supporting different environments that I've used to take the mindset that I need to learn everything so that I can be confident and do my job. And just like the analogy of you know eating the entire wheel of cheese, it, it's just not realistic, at least for me. So I started to change my mindset to learn everything I need to know to do what I'm doing now. And when I go position to position, I often don't know certain things when I go into the position, but just kind of take the mindset that I'll just pick it up and I'll learn it. Or I'll, I'll dig in and, and, and figure it out quickly 
so that I can be a contributor. I used to apply to jobs where I knew at least 70% of what they required of me, thinking that I would be able to do a good job and then pick up the 30%. Um, but I've taken jobs since kind of maturing from that mindset where I knew 10% of what I needed to know and just picked up what I needed when I got there. So I think also with technology changing so much, I've learned some tools really well. And when I come to back to them several years later, they've changed quite a bit. So I've had to relearn them, which is unfortunate, but it's just kind of like learning what you need for today and then moving on. I think that's the best way to do it. And it kind of rounds out your skill set. I've worked on Google Cloud and Amazon Cloud quite a bit. I've worked with in one shop, it was all chef. Another one, it was it was all puppet. And then I actually worked for puppet. I worked at another, I worked at a quantitative trading firm that was all Ansible. I've done Terraform in multiple places. I've done Kubernetes. I've done ECS. I uh, had a swarm shop once. So I've, I've been kind of all over the place. So I, I, like I said, I'm not an expert at anything, but I've, I've seen enough things where I can start picking things up and moving quickly. And that's keeping with that mindset that, well, I, I only use AWS, so I'm not going to work with Google Cloud or I only use Datadog, so I won't touch Splunk. You know, it's, it's about keeping the mindset of like, what's right for this customer and what are they using now and how can we best use it? Being more opportunistic and uh, optimistic about, about what you're getting into. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Great advice. You, you talked about the 10%, you know, feeling comfortable with 10% of what's, what's out in front of you before you apply for a job. I think that's great advice as long as you have a proven track record of being able to figure things out, right? I think that's, that's key as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't playing the 10% game five years into my career. <laughs> it was more at the 15-year mark. I think it's about your confidence level of how much you can convince your future colleagues that you can do this and also your willingness to buckle down and do it. If yeah. you got both of those in, in line, then it really doesn't matter. Absolutely. Well, you're a fascinating person, John. I'm curious about what you do outside of uh, technology. Do you, what else do you do in your life? I'm a, a pretty big um, adventurer person. So I was in the military and I traveled to a lot of different countries and I still travel. Um, I, I go to Africa occasionally uh, to see the wilderness over there. But uh, one of my biggest passions is I write fantasy fiction. And I'm about to publish my first fantasy fiction novel on December 1st of this year. So I'm very excited about that. Congratulations. I know that uh, getting a book published is not an easy thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that book? Sure. It's a, a YA epic fantasy called Mirrodin's Folly. It will be in a series called the Her Soul of Fire series. And um, I'm hoping to publish one book a year. At, I'm currently on clip for that. So, But it's basically, it starts out as a, as a love story. Um, and then there's an abduction. And then it's kind of a traditional epic quest where, where the hero is gathering a party and, and chasing the abductors and trying to save, uh, save his friend and then also to, to, to save his relationship back home. It's one of those uh, journeys where it takes you lots of places and he ends up recounting a lot of his journeys through letters to uh, the person he loves at home. So it, it's, it's just kind of a, a fun traditional tale. But it's YA, so it's appropriate for adults and for teenagers and 
and whatnot. And I've really enjoyed writing it. I actually wrote it in originally in, in one month for NaNoWriMo, which is a the world national writers effort. So uh, it was, it's been a fun journey. I wrote it originally in 2015 and, and I'm, I'm just happy to be publishing it now. Well, congratulations on that. Is there a link to get more information on the, on the book once it comes out? The, there is. I, I, can, I can share it with you. And you mentioned Magic Bus, your current client. Do you want to tell folks about Magic Bus? Yeah. So they're a great client. They're a, a small startup out of uh, California. And what they're trying to solve is a, a really big, big need. And what, what it is, is they are creating a van pooling uh, tech solutions to try to enable and fill vans to basically not only reduce the amount of vehicles on the road, but help people going to common areas uh, get there easily. And uh, it's, it's so desperately needed around the country for more efficient mass transit. And this is really catered to not only just in customers, but also business consumers to be able to ship groups of people around through not only California, but I, I know they're going to they're going to plan to go to nationwide and, and bigger as well. But uh, it's just it's just a really interesting uh, startup trying to solve real problems. And I've enjoyed working with them. Fantastic. And where can people get more information about Magic Bus? You can go to magicbus.io to get more information about them. Well, John, thank you once again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show, Michael. I also appreciate it. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me on this journey to understand more about DevOps, infrastructure as code. Thanks to John. Check out John's website at thedarkwriter.io. I'll post links to his book and all of the resources that we mentioned throughout the show. If you enjoy this content, I would love to ask for a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there or your podcast network of choice. Also, special thanks to Dominic Wellington for joining me today. Check out Dominic's podcast. It's called Roll for Enterprise. It's sometimes described as the squishy heart at the center of enterprise IT. It's a podcast hosted by four tech thinkers and doers who came up through the trenches of enterprise IT and talk every week about the news that's relevant in this world. It's a brisk half hour to catch up on what happened and why it matters. Come for the mainframe jokes. Stay for the interviews with guests across the enterprise IT industry, founders, analysts, marketers, VCs, and product managers. Check out rollforenterprise.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.